0: Welcome to On DOD on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and FederalNewsRadio.com. Now, your host, Jared Serbu.
1: Thanks for tuning in this week. On the program this time, we're going to take a deeper look at one element of a special report you may have seen on federal news radio or heard on the air. It's called Defense Acquisition at a Crossroads. And in that report, we examine the possible end of an era in one administration's acquisition policies, just as DOD gets ready to implement a raft of congressional reforms to the acquisition process. This week, we're going to hear some longer versions of the conversations with the defense experts you saw quoted in that report as they helped us take a look back on Better Buying Power, the Pentagon's Internal Acquisition Improvement Initiative that started back in 2010 when Ashton Carter was the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition Technology and Logistics. Those programs were, of course, carried forward into Better Buying Power 2.0 and 3.0 under Frank Kendall, Carter's successor. The first expert we'll hear from this week is Andrew Hunter. He's currently a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, but before that, he was the chief of staff to both Kendall and Carter, just as the department was beginning to assemble the Better Buying Power initiatives. Hunter says several years of data clearly show that Better Buying Power drove better results from the defense acquisition system.
0: Obviously, uh, Undersecretary Kendall uh, established the practice, which I think is a good one, of actually publishing a report every year to measure the performance. Of the acquisition system and of course you can pick at his measures but he's put it out there for exactly that purpose for it to be debated and evaluated uh, we've actually at CSIS done uh, our own analysis based on contract data which actually comes in pretty close to supporting a lot of the data that uh, DAD put in its report so it's pretty clear in my view that there has been an actual improvement in the performance of the acquisition system that you can measure Uh, several ways and that's no small achievement Uh, when we you know ten years ago uh, in Congress set out to require that the Department of Defense measure its performance uh, in acquisition uh, a lot of people considered it sort of an impossible thing to do Uh, but we now have measures that show that things are getting better and I give a lot of credit for that to initiatives like should cost uh, like the affordability caps uh, that, uh, that were put in place under Better Buying Power. Um, and a lot, of course, there's 100 elements in Better Buying Power, and I won't go into right. them all, but, but I think they've been effective. And as you point out, you know, there's multiple phases to Better Buying Power. Uh, better Buying Power 1, you know, put in place the main framework, uh, the, the affordability caps, the should cost, uh, and a lot of the other core uh, approaches, uh, trying to get more competition. And uh, better Buying power too kind of added to that a major focus on the acquisition workforce and kind of got into that culture piece that you mentioned, uh, which I think has been successful. Uh, that's a harder one to measure objectively, you know, the the culture of the organization. My sense is that it has shifted, uh, and that the workforce, uh, essentially because it had the same message coming from at and leadership, coming from the department's leadership uh, for six, seven years. Uh, really aligned itself to that message. I mean, organizations in the Department of Defense are good at doing that. If the message stays constant, they will align themselves to it. Uh, And so I think they did succeed in shifting the culture, although that one I can't necessarily point to an objective measure. Um, And then there's Better Buying Power 3.0, which is really focused on uh, halting and perhaps starting to reverse the erosion in the US's uh, technological advantage. I think it's too early at this point to say whether we've really succeeded at that. Uh, and frankly, one of the biggest barriers is is the, is the Budget Control Act. So it's hard to uh, reverse uh, erosion of technological superiority at a time when you've been cutting the budget uh, by over, uh, well, cutting the budget by almost 30 percent, cutting contract spending to industry by over 35 uh, percent, and in particular, cutting R&D spending by 50 percent. So, you know, that's a really challenging environment in which to try to reverse the erosion of a technological advantage. Uh, The one area what I would say where we can objectively measure where we can probably say better buying power did not have the intended effect is in the area of competition. Uh, When you look at the data for competition, uh, the needle really has not shifted. So that was a major objective of better buying power. Yeah, and it, it kind of bounces around. So, you know, one year it'll bounce down, the next year it'll kind of bounce back. And it's, it's, really, it's really pretty constant over time uh, based on the data that we looked at. And so that, that's a tough nut. And I think it has to be conceded that uh, the ambition to leverage greater competition to, to achieve uh, a lot of cost savings and perhaps greater innovation, uh, I, I can't say that that occurred. That looks to have been something where there was a mess.
1: You raised a bunch of threads I want to pull on, but but let me pick up on the culture one first. How how important was it to package all of these? As you said, there's a hundred different things in better buying power. How important was it to package it into under one banner and call it something, whether it whether it's better buying power or anything else, and say this is a thing. These these are all parts of some coherent whole. We promise there's a method to the madness.
0: Yeah. Well, I think you put your finger on it right there. The whole point and purpose of having the Better Buying Power Initiative is to is to have a method to the madness uh, and to try and make it one that you can communicate to the workforce uh, and make it clear. And it's one of the core challenges you know, for, for the leadership during the Obama administration. And it certainly will be for the incoming administration, because defense acquisition is an enormously complex undertaking. Uh, And in an ideal world, if you're developing a message, you know, you keep it real short and pithy, you know, one, two, maybe three items at most. uh, And you focus on that and you hammer it home over and over again. Um, But defense acquisition doesn't necessarily lend itself to, you know, a three pithy saying uh, solution to the problems. So I think what Better Buying Power did is it gave a much more detailed, much richer answer to the question. That made it a challenge to communicate both to industry and to the workforce and to the product, uh, the public at large. Uh, but I think ultimately, because they stuck with it for a period of a number of years, it did sink in, uh, really on all of those fronts, maybe less so to the public at large, but certainly within the workforce on the Hill, uh, I think it did sink in, uh, and also with industry.
1: How different was this level of involvement compared, you know, compared to past at ls past administrations? What, what I mean by that is, you know, an, an AT&L saying it's not just our job to be the milestone decision authority on major programs. We're, we're going to get into the weeds. We're going to give our workforce detailed guidance and, and tools to do the things that we think are going to drive better outcomes, build professionalism, et cetera. I mean, That feels like it was a different attitude to me, but you've been watching these issues for longer than I have. Maybe I'm wrong.
0: Well, I think there are aspects of bettering power that differed from the views of uh, previous uh, DOD leadership in the acquisition arena. You know, uh, acquisition tends to experience these uh, shifts in direction uh, or shifts in operating theory, which is not unlike what you see, you know, in the broader uh, area of government where people kind of shift back and forth as to the efficacy of trade or tax cuts or spending. Uh, you, you, you get, I don't want to call them fads, but you get these, you know, momentum gets built up behind ideas and we go and implement them and their flaws become more apparent as we uh, as we start to do it. So there's certainly some shifts uh, in better buying power from what previous uh, previous leaders had proposed. But having said that, I think the biggest difference really was the, was the sustained commitment to it. Um, you know, I think a lot of the previous duty leaders were very active in pursuing, you know, the agendas that they saw as being uh, the best way to move forward in acquisition, uh, but they did really didn't have the longevity to get very far with those initiatives before their term was up and someone else came in and, and took it in a different direction.
1: Yeah, to that point, um... Part of the challenge is in the acquisition world, you're dealing with really long time cycles. So you know, to, to the extent that a lot of these things did any good, we may not even see the results until a few years down the road. And, it, and at that point, somebody else can claim credit for it.
0: Well, you're exactly right. And uh, perhaps the latest F-35 contract is an example of there that. You, and, you know, you know, that's great, right? I embrace that. I think it's a good thing that, you know, future administrations can take credit for some of the good work that was done by their predecessors. That's, that's a fine thing. Uh, but your point is extremely well taken. Our research shows that uh, when a new policy is implemented, it takes a, about a minimum of two years to see any measurable effect of that in the contracting system, you know, so when, you know, when objectives were set to change the small business, uh, perf- the performance towards the small business goals, to change competition, to reduce single bid competition, for example, where, it's, you know, something's put out for competition but receives only one bid, some of these policies we measured they had an impact, but it took about two years for that impact to really show up uh, in the data, and of course, more often than not. In Washington, people are looking for immediate results, and they, uh, and that's not very satisfying in the world of acquisition. It really does take two years or more to make a shift in policy.
1: On the point about data, I mean, I, I'm certainly among those who applaud Mr. Kendall for publishing these detailed reports every year, but, but as he says, the data is really noisy. So how, how tightly can you draw a line between any individual policy that was enacted under better buying power, and for example, a, a reduction in cost and schedule growth.
0: Yeah, the broader the goal, the harder it is to make that tie because, of course, there's so many you know factors of cause and effect, uh, and you could be seeing noise. Um, it's hard to get a clear signal. The more discrete the policy, the easier it is to see. So, for example, single offer competition. Uh, the department set out to uh, to reduce the amount of single offer competition, and you can see very clearly in the data they succeeded. Uh, the department set out to reduce the use of time and materials contracts. They succeeded. Uh, they dramatically reduced the use of that. So uh, the more discreet the policy is, uh, uh, and, the, you know, and, and measurable for that matter, uh, the, the easier it is to get it done and to see the results in the data. A more amorphous goal that says, you know, we want to improve on-time schedule performance, uh, cost performance. We actually have the data to show that cost performance improved, harder to show with with certainty that it's because of any specific policy initiative. Um, So that's kind of how I see it. Uh, I think it doesn't make it, you know, I think it's still worthwhile for the department to have broad uh, goals for improvements to the defense acquisition system. It makes it much harder, though, for them to prove that they've achieved them.
1: The two things that Mr. Kendall calls out, and and you mentioned them too, as, you know, kind of the, the, the big stars of better buying power are should cost and affordability caps. Do we have good enough data to tell us that those two things in particular made a difference?
0: I I would say arguably so from a matter of of logic. <laughs> you okay. know, uh you know, it, it, we don't have first principles. You know, I can't do a physics-based cause and effect that says, okay, here's the particle that hit the other particle that made it move. Uh I think that's just not that's just not practical or possible in the world of defense acquisition, but when you see the clear improvements uh, in the performance of major acquisition programs, I think it's a pretty reasonable uh pretty reasonable to believe that the affordability caps had a positive impact. Can't prove it with beyond the shadow of a doubt, uh, but I think it's pretty reasonable uh, to believe that that is the case. Uh, Similarly with should cost, uh, and this is an area where we hope to add to this discussion with a report that's going to be coming out soon uh, where we can show that in the contract data, you can see a significant reduction, particularly in the last three years, uh, in the number of contracts that had to exceed their original cost uh, value estimate uh, and, and the number of contracts that ended up terminating for blacker performance, uh, we th- there's a significant drop-off in those two factors in the contract data. So, you know, again, hard to prove that that's because of should cost, but I think it's it's reasonably clear that that these things are related to one another.
1: You probably don't want to scoop your upcoming report, but do you want to give us some some high level uh, some high level descriptions of, of, of what that's going to show there.
0: Well, there's uh, there's uh, I'll scoop it a little bit uh, for for the benefit of your uh, of your listeners. Thank you very much. Uh, there's sort of three main things that that we found that I think are are important, and and many many little things that are also important but less significant. Uh, the first is that uh, that the big drawdown uh, in contract spending has ended Uh, that, in fact, 2016, there was a significant recovery in contract spending. Uh, But that's good news, not unexpected, but uh, somewhat surprising in its magnitude. The second big thing is that, unfortunately, notwithstanding the recovery in contract spending overall, uh, the major decline in R&D spending uh, has not recovered, and that, I think, is very significant. In this environment where we've been talking about we're trying to regain the department's technological edge. And then the third thing is this thing that I just mentioned about uh, the real evidence that the performance of the acquisition system has been improving uh, over the last several years. And we think we've got very solid data to back up the already solid data in Mr. Kendall's report to show
1: that. The R&D thing is worrying. I mean, you guys, in in another very good report six months or so ago, pointed out that that's really what's taken the biggest hit since sequestration. Exactly.
0: And it has a real effect on industry.
1: You know, I mean, industry responds to these signals.
0: And so, uh, you know, the the big defense companies, their revenues are doing okay. The reason why they're doing okay uh, is because they've shifted, you know, they've shifted to where the money is. And when the money's not in R&D, They're shifting their resources into other activities that aren't R&D either. So uh, the the reduction in the government's uh, R&D spending, uh, the effect of that is magnified because the market responds to that signal and shifts its resources elsewhere as well.
1: That's Andrew Hunter, a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, previously the chief of staff to Ashton Carter and Frank Kendall, while well, they served, one after another, as the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition Technology and Logistics. We'll come back and talk more about the legacy of better buying power after a short pause. This is On DoD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serbu. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is On DoD, I'm Jared Serbu. Andrew Hunter is our guest for this part of the program. He's back with us for a few more minutes as we continue to discuss what came out of Better Buying Power, DoD's seven-year program to make internal improvements to the acquisition process. Hunter has a unique perspective on this. He was a senior DoD acquisition staff member at the time Better Buying Power's initiatives were first being developed. There was really, a, I think, a, a concerted effort to get industry input as as the department put these three iterations together. Um, talk a bit about how much that informed the development of these these initiatives, because there are a lot of folks in industry who would say it was nice of you to ask for input, but, but the department didn't necessarily listen on some issues, like LPTA is the one that constantly comes up. People say it's still an issue to this day. And there's always seemed to have been a disconnect between industry's view as to whether or not that was a problem and the department's view as to whether or not that was a problem.
0: Well, uh, I think there's two pieces of that. Let me deal with LPTA separately. Okay. Uh, you know, I do, re- I do You know, recall that industries, as you said, they were appreciative of the fact that they were offered the opportunity to provide input on better buying power, not always satisfied with how much of that input got taken into account. Uh, I, I think that's a fair critique. Uh, I think uh, particularly for the initial round of better buying power, uh, there weren't a whole lot of changes made uh, to what was originally put out and then after industry had a chance to comment. I think as better buying power went on, however, industry's, uh, industry's input was taken into account and more and more so. Uh, and because, you know, frankly, there's more time There was a stronger relationship, um, you know, a a dialogue that had developed between the department and industry that had somewhat died away a little bit before Better Buying Power uh, 1. And so I would argue those later iterations of Better Buying Power were significantly informed uh, by a dialogue and input from industry uh, and and were developed in some cases in response to that input, particularly Better Buying Power 3. Uh, not necessarily in a sort of, you know, uh, in a regulatory fashion with a proposed rule and then a, you know, an amended version later, but in their core development, uh, a lot of industry's concerns were incorporated. Uh, just briefly on LPTA, I think it, it bears mentioning so that. Uh, People aren't left with the wrong idea that LPTA was not ever a better buying power initiative You know, this was not something that the department's leadership was pushing and trying to say we want people to use lowest price technically acceptable Uh, You know, you won't find that in any of the better buying powers. It's not there. It was never there and it wasn't a message that uh, to my ears that the leadership uh, from OSD ever sent to the workforce Uh, the, the tricky part is Not everyone agrees on what is an uh, LPTA-type solicitation, and there are cases where LPTA is appropriate, and so the department didn't want to fall into the trap of telling people never use LPTA, uh, and then ending up with a lot of uh, competitions where best value was winning when there really wasn't a significant value difference between the proposals that were coming in. And of course, that that can give you a lot of trouble in the protest world as well.
1: Yeah, the, I mean, the Frank Kendall position on a lot of this seemed to be, you know, industry, it's all well and good to complain about a problem that you perceive, but you need to show me some data to prove that it's a problem before I try and do something about it. Is that fair?
0: Well, but I would also say that uh, Better Buying Power too, with its focus on let's define what best value means, uh, that was a response to industry's input on LPTA, where they said, we think you're you know you should be using real best value competition Uh, and the response from mr. Kendall was okay I'm good with that but we got to define what best value means otherwise number one we're not really gonna get the goal Uh, we're not really gonna meaningfully stop LPTA and number two we're not going to be able to defend it (laughs) if we can't show clearly that something is in fact a better value than something else and worse and worth the cost differential uh, then it's not going to stand up uh, in our somewhat litigious contracting process. So uh, that was the response. And uh, I think it was the right response hmm.
1: how, how would you How would you handicap the chances of the next administration doing something like better buying power? they're They're going to call it something different, obviously, if they do it. but but something like it. And, and And if they do, what are the most important things that you think they need to continue?
0: Well, uh, you know, I, it would be pretty speculative at this point as to what they what they might consider, because we don't know at this point who uh, who the leaders in the acquisition field are going to be. Fair enough. Uh, we do know a little bit about you know the leadership of the services, but they're uh, individuals who seem very qualified, but had you know don't have a real track record of time in government where you can point and say, yeah, and I know where they're coming from in terms of a policy perspective. So it's still, it's still wait and see. Um, I think uh, a number of the better buying power initiatives like uh, should cost, like affordability targets uh, are extremely well founded. And in fact, uh, you know, the, the FY17 NDAA basically moved to put the affordability target requirement into statute for the very reason that I believe Congress agreed that this was a extremely worthwhile practice and they were somewhat concerned that it might not continue with a change of leadership at the department they wanted to, to lock it in place.
1: Andrew Hunter is the director of the Defense Industrial Initiatives Group at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Previously, chief of staff to undersecretaries of defense Ash Carter and Frank Kendall. Hunter is one of several defense experts who talked to us as part of our special report, Defense Acquisition at a Crossroads. More of those insights when we come back from another break. This is On DOD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serbu. Thanks for listening to federalnewsradio.com at 1500 a.m. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we continue to hear from a few of the defense experts we spoke to as part of a special report, Defense Acquisition at a Crossroads. You can find that report at federalnewsradio.com. On this week's show, we're focusing on the legacy of Better Buying Power, DOD's Internal Acquisition Improvement Program. Next, we're going to hear from David David Berto. Berto is now the president of the Professional Services Council. He's worked in and around defense acquisition for decades. His previous job was as the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Logistics and Materiel Readiness.
2: With the three different versions of, of better buying power, and, and as they evolved from a uh, an overarching uh, framework that uh, that Dr. Carter put out when he was the Undersecretary, uh, that focused a whole lot on how the government did business, how DoD did business, to moving forward with uh, with Frank Kendall to uh, sort of I think his watchword for the second version was think, right, which is really more the internal processes that you go through before you uh, uh, write requirements and, and solicit, evaluate and award contracts and then how you manage those I- internally uh, to the third, which was much more of an internal process oriented of of how do you actually change the outcomes by changing the processes. So the, that kind of evolving dynamic, I think, was one of the, the real hallmarks of, of better buying power. The problem is that the system, that is the internal people who are uh you know, uh running programs and, and managing contracts and, and getting budgets and developing requirements, and the external system, the media, the public, the Congress, the the uh the, the recipients of this tend to see these things as static uh, rather than evolving. And so I think the fundamental dynamic was there was a, an evolutionary aspect to it uh, that frequently was missed because documents tend to become static and you read the words and the, the words become permanent, right? So that, that dynamic, I think, uh, probably still persists today.
1: Yeah. I'm glad you raised that. It it, it raises another question I was about to get to, which is, you know, how useful or important was it to put all of this under under a brand, under a heading of better buying power or or whatever you wanted to call it? Because if nothing else, it seems to me it sent the signal that this is a serious business. The acquisition workforce is a serious profession. You know, we care about giving you the right tools to get better results and and we want you to succeed.
2: You know, the 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 Putting everything into one framework, I, I think is vital. Um, there were comments occasionally of how can you possibly have you know thirty something initiatives Well, when I cut my teeth on acquisition reform, it was the beginning of the uh, of the Reagan administration and Frank Carlucci was the deputy secretary and he ran his own acquisition review process and it produced the 31 initiatives the Carlucci 31 initiatives uh, which uh, when it got up to the hill had a 32nd initiative added which was competition and so you know all of my history says that if you're really going to be comprehensive there's a lot of pieces have to come in and I, I think better buying power reflects that the problem is it's hard to memorize 33 initiatives right? right it's hard to get us get this get your heads around this so collapsing it as as was done into five or six categories helps a little bit but ultimately the individual parts of the enterprise inside DOD and outside DOD have to figure out which ones matter most to them and focus on that. That becomes difficult, right, because, because tracking across 33 when some people are paying attention to some and other people are paying attention to others becomes just a, a complex internal management structure. And I think that gets wrapped around the axle sometimes and it gets too complicated to keep track.
1: I know you said you don't want to view acquisition improvement or, or, or these guidelines as, as static things, but when you look back on all three iterations of better buying power, are, are, are there outcomes that you can point to where you can say, yeah, this line of effort really made a difference uh, in, 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 in achieving this type of outcome? I think
2: that the process of getting real results from acquisition, you're only now beginning to see some of those results. And you look at it in two ways. One of the parallel efforts was the annual uh, report that AT&L put out uh, on the performance of the acquisition system, right? right. That uh, that annual document, uh, a very data-rich uh, and 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 uh, evidence-rich uh, uh, piece. It tended to focus more on procurement and uh, acquisition milestone decisions and performance on budget and schedule for major defense acquisition programs. And so, it's really just a subset of of the overall acquisition process. But there, you can you can actually see in the latest of those reports that was put out last fall some very very positive trends in terms of of uh, year-over-year uh, reductions in in uh, 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 budget Growth year-over-year reductions in schedule slippage. You know, it's not perfect. It's not like uh, we're we're um, ahead of schedule and under budget on everything. Uh, But there's been some pretty dramatic progress in terms of the results year-over-year over over the last seven or eight years. That's a very positive outcome. On the other hand, there are other pieces of it, like access to innovation, where um, you know we're too far away from the real results to see this because it takes a decade before you see real innovation coming into a defense system and then being delivered uh, in products that the field is using.
1: And I think Frank Frank Kendall would say that the main reason you want to publish that data that you mentioned is that it shows policymakers, it shows Congress what's working, and you should want to institutionalize the things that are working. He would say those are things like should cost management and, and affordability caps. Do you, do you see as a direct connection, as he does, between those elements of better buying power and, and the, the trends that you mentioned, schedule reductions, cost reductions?
2: Uh, there's a correlation there. you know, I, I don't know that it's always a cause-and-effect relationship because in, in many ways the kinds of things that get written into the Better Buying Power were the initiatives that were actually underway and are being reflected in that document rather than being pushed and generated by that document. Yeah. So uh, looking at, at should cost, what that really is is the, does the government know what something ought to cost and does it give you a benchmark to tell whether you're getting value for money? Um, so in, in Better Buying Power, that's applied pretty well, again, to the major acquisition acquisition systems, the larger question of how do you then translate that into something for the services industry, for logistics, for sustainment, um, much tougher. And we're further away from seeing real results there in terms of, of, uh, you know, what does something, uh, what should something cost, and therefore, how do you know you're getting value for money? Um, And I think one of the the places where better buying power fell short, and I think Frank Kendall even emphasized this in his commentary uh, over the past year, is it never really got... At the services end, at the sustainment end, at the logistics end, uh, I I think he said that was going to be Better Buying Power 4.0. Somebody else, maybe the new undersecretary for acquisition and sustainment, uh, once that position is created, Uh, we'll have to pick that one up.
1: To that point, I mean, uh, given what you know about institutions, is it likely that we'll see a new administration pick up Better Buying Power and run with it, or are they going to want to do their own thing?
2: the history of changes in administration is uh, every, everything has to look new right and and so you don't pick up the names and the and the uh, uh nomenclature from the from the prior administration i would be surprised if uh, if that phrase uh, goes forward but the initiatives in it uh, will probably maintain and sustain themselves for quite some time to come you know the idea of, of performance based logistics for instance which is one of the the issues that i both pushed for at the time and, and still believe makes a lot of sense. For the government to define the performance that it's trying to achieve and then figure out what the right value for that is in terms of cost and, and, and set up forth on a path where um, you, know, you can actually produce better outcomes for less money over time, that's an objective that I think will survive into this administration quite, quite thoroughly and, and heartfully.
1: One of the long-running issues in acquisition that you've talked to us many times before about is sort of an unhealthy isolation of the requirements process from the acquisition process. Mr. Kendall's made the point a couple times recently that that he thinks affordability caps have helped with that in that they've they've kind of constrained the appetites of the requirers. I wonder if you think he's right, or if you've seen anything else over the past eight years that that gives you hope that that isolation between requirements and acquisition is is getting any better.
2: Well, you know, one of the one of the things that that legislation and and the executive branch itself has looked at a lot over the last couple of years is go all the way back to the Packard Commission recommendations from 1986 and say, are they still relevant? Do we need to change those recommendations, et cetera? The one part of those Packard Commission recommendations that was never fully implemented was to integrate requirements more thoroughly into the, the, the uh, process of acquisition, and especially the question of uh, you know affordability and cost is a, re- is a part of requirements rather than excluded from requirements. That's really never been implemented inside DOD. I think the budget environment that we find ourselves in now and for the foreseeable future, um, even if there is going to be an increase in defense, still says that affordability has got to be part of the calculus from the beginning because ultimately, uh, uh, Jared, it ends up being part of the calculus in the end. If you fall behind schedule, if you go over budget, somebody has to say, okay, what are we going to give up in order to be able to fit this? So affordability ends up driving it in the end. It should drive it from the
1: beginning. David Berto is a longtime acquisition expert who now serves as the president of the Professional Services Council, one of several close observers of the acquisition system who are good enough to speak with us for our special report, Defense Acquisition at a Crossroads. You can read that at federalnewsradio.com. One more break. GAO's Mike Sullivan will join us for a few minutes to share his thoughts on what came out of DOD's Better Buying Power initiatives. That's next on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbio. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbia. This week, we're hearing from defense experts about the legacy of better buying power. The Pentagon's seven-year push to get better results out of the acquisition system. Our final guest for the hour is Michael Sullivan, the Director for Acquisition and Sourcing Management at the Government Accountability Office. As he told me, the defense acquisition system is far from perfect after those seven years, but one of the best things DOD did was stick with one consistent set of policies for several years at a time, led first in 2010 by then Under Secretary of Defense Ash Carter and then his successor, Frank Kendall. So
3: there's been continuous leadership activity, which is very rare. Usually that, you know, we've seen that activity on average change less than two years, there'll be a uh, turnover in that position. In this case, it's been the same for seven or eight years. That we see as a good thing. And those initiatives have helped a lot, I think, in changing the way that the department is buying these big systems. So leadership commitment has, we we consider that complete. Now, that could change, of course, that could go back down, because now uh, this leadership is out. We're going to get a new leadership. We have to see how the continuity works you know, and whether the agendas change and all of that. So, but for now, we're saying that the leadership commitment is very good.
1: And just to to clarify quickly on that, Mike, that that management attention checkbox, is that something that you checked off during the course of Better Buying Power, or was there sufficient attention prior to the Carter-Kendall era? Uh,
3: Yeah, that happened during the the Carter-Kendall era. I believe we checked that off maybe the last iteration of our our high-risk list, which was probably two years ago. Got it, okay. The second criteria is capacity. And with that, we are focused mostly on their ability to make policy and not only that, but then to implement that policy into practice. And on that one, we're giving them a partially met at this point. Uh, we think that this is a, an issue that they always have a little problems with. And a lot of that is just cultural, you know, getting a bureaucracy to change, follow new policies and translate them into practices. The third criteria that we talk about is demonstrated progress. And in that case, uh, we found that actually the department, I believe four or five years ago under Frank Kendall, began doing its own performance reports and was able to indicate, indicate reduced cost and schedule growth and uh, a better portfolio management and issues like that with its annual reports. And so we look at those annual reports and we see that it's a good tool for them to kind of track their progress anyway. So we've given them a partially met in that. Uh, I would say monitoring, we've also given them a partially met on our high risk series. Uh, And it's basically for the same thing. They're doing the annual reports, they adjust them every year as they learn more about their investments and what's working and wasn't it, what isn't working they they build that into the reports and they usually have recommendations coming out of those reports that are helpful moving forward so it's it's a proactive measure that they're taking the final criteria that we talk about is action plans and we've given them a partially met on that as well and i think most of that is because we are in a changing administration now so at this point we're not sure if the continuity will you know how much continuity is is going to be left in the policies and in the practices and in moving forward with improving uh, a lot of these major weapon systems
1: let's let's stick with the uh, the performance of the defense acquisition system reports that you mentioned of course there's a million different ways to to dice and slice and and evaluate the system have you come to any conclusions about whether they're choosing good ones, or has, has GAO done anything to validate the the, the data they're presenting in those reports, or, or the conclusions they're reaching?
3: Yeah, we have done. We we have not validated their data. That would take, uh, you know, for us to validate something. The way we're supposed to do it is something we haven't taken on yet. But we do review the reports every year. We we review them really closely. You know, we have our own quick look report that does a similar thing. Uh, to what they're doing in fact I, they may have started theirs uh, after they saw our quick look reports for mm. a couple of years So we're doing similar things and we certainly need to be informed by what they're doing and we think they're doing a pretty good job They're not I don't see them cherry-picking data, you know They're looking at the overall major defense acquisition program portfolio and they're pretty pretty much calling it as they see it there's a number of reasons that I believe things are changing since 2008, Better Buying Power initiatives being one of them. But things have been trending in a more positive light in terms of cost and schedule.
1: When when, when we talk about cost and schedule, I mean, are you able to point to any, any discrete, because obviously there's dozens of initiatives in Better Buying Power, but any discrete initiatives within Better Buying Power that you can tie back directly to those cost and schedule reductions?
3: Well, I think there are some. Uh, Things in the Better Buying Power Initiative that have certainly helped that. I think the Should Cost Initiative has been one of those. Probably more than that is the way that they set up the business case for each programs now. They have some of the criterion Better Buying Power Initiatives that create a better business case at the outset of a program. Uh, and that has helped a lot. And that has a lot to do with what kind of contracting you're gonna use, what the requirements look like at the start. Uh, what is required to bring to the decision maker, which is up until now has been the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition Technology and Logistics. You know, what kind of business case you have to bring forward in a much more thorough scrubbing of that before they begin a program. But then once they get going, I think that the better buying power initiatives, should cost is something that was established in the Better Buying Power initiatives and really it's a strategy to seek out and eliminate on discrete programs and and through discrete actions anything that might be considered low value on a program cost anything Mm -hmm. that you know maybe is non-value or low-value or you know a a requirement that maybe you don't really need you can get rid of that and reduce cost Uh, it urges program managers to scrutinize just about every element of program cost and assess whether each of those elements can be reduced and reduced relative to the year before. So they're looking at incremental changes. It's there to challenge learning curves. For example, if, if they're looking at a contract where a certain learning curve was established and cost estimates may have been based on that, they look and see year to year if perhaps that should be adjusted downward you know, if, if there's more progress being made. It dissects overhead and indirect costs on a program, and they give much more scrutiny over that. And, and it just looks, in general, it looks for target cost reductions relative to the profit incentive and everything else to determine in the end what a program really should cost as opposed to what they think it's gonna cost right now.
1: Yeah, and as you've looked at individual programs through your work, have you gotten the sense or have you seen clear evidence that should cost it really is kind of inculcated throughout throughout the department that it's kind of part of the culture and, and all the big programs are using it
3: i think we've seen some positive pockets for sure i think you know i and and again i would go back to the start of a program and the business case the stuff in the better buying power initiatives that helps to create a better business case at the outset are the things that we believe have really uh, made a change but we've also seen you know we do the quick look every year i'm sure you're familiar with that mm-hmm. and uh and we always look at how they're doing with should cost and it seems to me every year so far they have been able to capture pretty good amounts of dollars i'm going to say in the in the low billions of dollars each year that they can reduce because of what they did with should cost so it, i think it's been a positive thing
1: yeah so let me ask the sort of the obverse of the the earlier question I asked. Are there are there obvious missing pieces from better buying power? Things that the department really needs to tackle, but didn't. And I'll I'll just note that Frank Kendall's answer to this is they really never got to sustainment costs.
3: Well, that's a big one, of course, and and you know so there's a debate over that too. Is that part of acquisition or is that uh, you know the, the department really probably should look in terms of total ownership cost much more than it does now. Right now, when they start a major weapon system acquisition, they, they tend to focus on what it's gonna to cost to develop that system and then be able to produce it at a good cost. And the life cycle costs, at this point, I don't think are taken into consideration as much as they should be. If you look at a private sector firm that's buying aircraft, they're very concerned with what it's gonna to take to operate and maintain that fleet in fact that's their overwhelming concern the acquisition cost of a weapon system is about 30 percent of the life cycle cost the other 70 percent is going to be in operating and maintaining that weapon system and the department doesn't do enough we don't think and the prime the defense industry itself doesn't do enough to think about reducing those life cycle costs when they're designing an aircraft so that that that's something that they can improve on now you know the jsf for example is it's a 400 billion dollar acquisition program or i, I believe now it's at around 380 or somewhere around there $1 billion dollars to develop and then procure all 2500 aircraft the operation and maintenance costs are now projected to be anywhere from 800 billion to 1.2 trillion and probably a lot more could have been done up front to design cost reductions into that
1: michael sullivan is director for acquisition and sourcing management at the government accountability office one of several defense acquisition experts who joined us this week to look back on the results of dod's better buying power program this was part of a special report on federal news radio defense acquisition at a crossroads you can read that two-part series at federalnewsradio.com That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. So long.
0: You've been listening to On DoD with Federal News Radio DOD reporter Jared Serbu. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. On DoD, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. and federalnewsradio.com. At the Home Depot, we have the tools to make your holiday magic in the easiest way possible. With our easy-to-assemble artificial trees, you can have a fully-shaped, realistic tree up in your house within minutes. And you know your holiday look wouldn't be complete without our classic animated Santa that collapses for easy storage. Get free delivery on over 2 million eligible items, and you can spread holiday cheer to the whole neighborhood easily. The Home Depot. How
1: doers get more done. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Count on the professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts to recommend the best products for your vehicle
3: and budget. Get maximum cooling system performance for 10 years or 300,000 miles with peak long-life universal pre-mixed antifreeze and coolant. Now just $3.99 after mail-in
1: rebate. Limit supply. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit OReillyAuto.com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto
2: Parts.